Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We have a packed show for you coming at you uh, on a not normal day. That's a really weird way of saying it's a Thursday. I meant to get a Wednesday show out for you guys, but we had a couple of... Uh, uh, scheduling conflicts per se in terms of trying to get a couple interviews lined up wanted to make sure I had all my ducks in a row and get out a complete show for you guys so we are um, doing this on a Thursday but a packed show nonetheless uh, off the top we're going to talk to Michael Portner he is the founder of Delta Sports Group a uh, representation and marketing agency also known as a sports agency um, based out of Cleveland Mississippi um, and we talked a lot about NIL um, he's an NFL PA certified agent. What uh, what it takes to kind of get into the sports agencies, an interesting guy. He worked for Lee Steinberg out in Newport Beach, California. Uh, if you don't know who that is, if you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, that movie's loosely based off his life. He represents Patrick Mahomes. He represented pretty much every major sports figure, uh, really from the 80s and 90s on and is a guy that basically invented it not invented but revolutionized the sports agency and uh industry and made it an actual industry itself so uh porter has a lot of interesting experience and now is starting up his own sports agency uh dsgathletes.com got a lot of interesting stories and perspective on uh you know, we hit a little bit more on the NIL side of it because I think that's more relevant to Ole Miss and you guys in particular in the ins and outs of that and what you can, cannot do, how to approach kids, uh, you know, in terms of getting them deals and things like that. I think you'll find it interesting and hopefully learn a little bit more about NIL. And, uh, oh, if I didn't include this last detail, he's also my best friend from college. I lived with him for three years, which was a uh, nice hookup in the interview process. I didn't have to go through his publicist or anything like that, and uh, he paid made some time for me and then after that we are going to talk to matt wilson of our daily bears get a little baylor preview going for you uh as you get geared up for the sugar bowl on new year's day a little inside baseball here i was trying to book a baylor guest to get like a general preview going i know we have a while before the game uh actually happens but I was trying to get a guest to kind of kick things off in the week. Not a whole lot going on on the basketball front for Ole Miss with finals week until Friday. And I want to go ahead and kind of dive into this game and this matchup a little bit. Well, I reached out to one guy. He was a little bit late responding, reached out to another. Long story short, we have two Baylor guests for you. So I'm going to have one on the Friday show tomorrow. I promise it won't be repetitive. The guy we are talking to tomorrow's name is Travis Roeder, and he's more of a, uh, I would say, schematic specialist and is going to give some really good insight on the ins and outs of Baylor's offense and defense and really what makes them tick, what they like to do on both sides of the football, where uh, Matt Wilson kind of offered some some more general thoughts about the Baylor program, Dave Aranda's turnaround going from two and seven to Pac-12 champions and uh, kind of everything that comes with that. So I don't think that will be repetitive at all, but just if you're an ardent listener and you listen to both the Thursday and the Friday show and you're wondering why the hell I did this twice, hey, inside baseball, it happens sometimes, but I think they'll be different enough. I think you'll enjoy it. But we got a great show for today. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, hopefully you'll learn something from these conversations. Portner, really interesting guy. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. 
the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out. I just got tagged in another daily free play winner. They're giving those out on site. That is skyboxsportspicks.com slash free plays. You can go there every single day and get a free play for college basketball, which is by far and away their best model, which is saying a lot because they're absolutely murdering the NFL right now, hitting it about 60%. Um, coming off a seven and one week, they've had a nine and oh week in the mix. They're just printing money in the NFL. Same with college football. You need to get on these guys. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's month long, season long, sports centric, all sports. I'd recommend just going to the Skybox for the year long uh, all access pass. It'll pay for itself and then some. But if they if you're looking for something else, they're going to have a picks package that fits your price range. These guys are going to lead you to profit more consistently than your own dumb brain. I can promise you that. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Make sure the bookie is paying you and not the other way around. Check them out. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Rights subscriber. That's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a freeze news newsletter from me three to five times a week, plus some discounted meats. How about that? Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just roll in there. Show them proof of subscription and you'll be on your way. And go find some other favorites in there. They've got all kinds of fresh seafood, sausages, crab stuff, mushrooms, lane train special, bacon wrap filet. It's absolutely the best butcher shop in the world for that matter, but certainly in the state of Mississippi and Oxford. So lucky to have it. Greg wants to make your grilling experience good. Go check it out. I can't even begin to name you the favorites at LBs. I love it when you guys tag, tag me in uh, either the finished product or what you're about to throw on the grill, some filet burgers. Just all kinds of great stuff. Check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg's the best. Check them out. All right. We're going to get to Michael Portner first. Big, uh, broad, wide-ranging conversation on what it takes to kind of crack into the sports agency industry and become a sports agent. It's a hell of a cutthroat business. Portner's got a cool story of how he got into it. And then a lot of NIL stuff and you know, his approach to uh, gaining clients and representing people and uh, his background working with really a titan in the sports uh, agency industry. Here it is, Michael Portner. All right, we now welcome on DSG Athletes Delta Sports Group founder, Michael Portner, sports agent, also my best friend. Uh, never figured at, uh, at Warren Street, or excuse me, Pierce Extended, we'd be uh, doing a podcast. But uh, getting into your newly minted agent, getting the NIL game, figured it was as relevant as ever with everything going on from recruiting NIL and really just the sports agency thing in general. How are you, man? And I'm doing great. Like you said, with uh, Pierce extended, it's crazy that uh, what, six years later, that's how old we are now, huh? That we're, yeah, it's we're, nuts. we're like, dialing into a zoom together. It's crazy. Well, you're over here starting, you know, a sports agency and I fulfilled my lifelong dream of becoming a grease salesman and a part-time sports podcaster. So everything we hashed out in those living rooms is absolutely coming true. So we got, uh, we got that going for us. So you're fresh out of the gates. Delta sports group was officially launched. What roughly a week ago. It's yep. been, a, I know it's been a long time in the works for you. Let's let's get to your background in a second, but just in terms of Delta Sports Group, if you were pitching it to a total stranger, how would you explain what that is? So it is my business that I just started that the thing is, is we're doing the um, what we learn in business school is that every business has to have some sort of purpose more so than what you do. 
So what I would pitch starting off is the stuff we believe in, right? So uh, we believe in making positive change. I want to be able to create positive change in local communities through the power of sports. So there's a hundred different ways we can do that, right? I don't want to just stay strictly to I'm a sports agent doing NFL, hopefully down the road or sooner than later and NIL deals. Um, this business, I want to be bigger than that. I want it to go whichever direction it can go in moving forward. Um, but if I'm pitching to, to a college kid right now, what I'm trying to do is emphasize that I will be able to set up their foundation for life off the field. So once they hang up their cleats, everybody has to have a foundation for moving forward, which a lot of athletes do not have. Um, and that is where I come in. I have some valuable skills, some things I've learned um, that I can uh, help establish that foundation for, again, life off the field um, once you hang up the cleats. So most people out there listening probably picked it, picked up what I was putting down when I said we were, you know, best friends, college roommates. Uh, we both went to Ole Miss. You went through the Ole Miss Test Bank Business School. You decided to apply yourself a little bit further and go to Samford Law School while I started doing, you know, sports radio and imp very important shit like that. But you get into Stanford, or excuse me, Samford in Birmingham. Not Lost, Stanford. Yes, not Stanford. <laughs> I mean, you look. If you, it's almost like if, if if it sounds that way, I wouldn't correct people. But Samford Law School in Birmingham. I know you went with the intent or the, I guess, aspiration to be a sports agent. And I've always said when I've talked about it with people in conversation, one of the things I've been most impressed with about you is, I mean, how many kids leave college? and want to get into law school and say, you know what, I'm going to be a sports agent. And yeah. even just having very baseline dealings with sports agents just over the years, whether it's interviews or passing interactions or whatever, you know right off the bat that that's a cutthroat industry. And so anyone that was just leaving undergrad that was like, yeah, I'm going to be a sports agent, well, it's like, well, you know, good luck, kid. I don't think you really have any idea what you're about to get yourself into. But Part of that, just like any other industry, takes getting a good break. And it's not even – I don't even want to call it a lucky break because you were pretty proactive in making this opportunity happen. So after your first year – was it after your 1L year at Samford, you went to work for Lee Steinberg out in Newport Beach, California. We can get to Lee's background in a second. He is the sports agent of all sports agents, really just kind of revolutionized the industry. But tell the story again about how you actually got – that to happen because getting an internship or really to give someone you the time of day in that industry is hard as hell to do. Yeah. So speaking of, it was my second year of law school and to give a little bit of backtrack from there, I wrote this paper in high school about how to achieve your dream job and my dream job sports agent. I realized pretty quickly being my IS uh, basketball scene and baseball scene where it's not going to lead me to the professionals. Um, so I wanted to find something else that I could motivate myself for, work hard to do. And I write this paper on sports agent and it gets me through the, the college years. So it was like, in my research, I found out you have to do market. You need to do marketing. You need to know management. So back to your test bank central. Yes, sir. We got through marketing and management <laughs> at, at Ole Miss. Um, so then I kind of was like, I want to keep chasing this dream. I don't exactly know what to do. I don't want to go work for a marketing agency. This dream's still on the table. Let's go to law school. So that's how I ended up in law school. 
same thing, like you mentioned, my second year, it came down to that pivotal moment of, if I want this to happen, I got to make it happen. So I know how to make it happen is, of course, every bit of advice you ever get is you got to get an internship. So I just had one of those defining moments. So it was like, all right, let's put your head down. Let's figure out how to land an internship. And it just so happened, I Google sports agent books. And guess what pops up? This book by Lee Steinberg, who's the agent of all agents, like you say. And I'm like, yep, let's buy it. So I buy the book. I start reading it. Of course, follow him on Twitter. And it's just one of those things, right place, right time. They were having an agent academy in Atlanta for the Super Bowl. So that uh, Super Bowl in Atlanta, um, they had the day before, or I guess the Friday before they had this agent academy where it's like a conference, you get to go meet the guys. They give you like a, an educational course of how to become an agent. And through there, I make a good connection with them. And I end up at another conference in Dallas where I make this big portfolio about why they should hire me. Um, again, it was a long shot, uh, but I guess that little effort that I put into it meant a lot to them. And the guy, uh, it was actually his partner, looked at me and said, yeah, we'll have you as an intern. Um, do you know where Newport Beach is? And I was like, in my head, this is how ignorant I was on the matter. I thought it was in New York City or like in yeah. New York. I was like, no, I was like, OK, well, uh, yeah, I'll be there. Like I went home and Googled Newport Beach. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to California. <laughs> so that is how. Uh, that's how I got there, man. It was one of those that uh, I kind of, I did my due diligence and worked hard and gave the effort, but like, I just kind of not slipped into it, but they decided to give me a chance for, um, for an internship. So for those of you that don't know much about Lee Steinberg, he, as I mentioned, the agent of all agents is probably the most accurate way to describe it because you know, it's funny. The first thing I remember you telling me about who the guy was, it's like, hey, have you seen the movie Jerry Maguire? That movie's loose, like loosely based off his life. And for those of you out there have seen the movie, you're probably thinking, oh, holy shit, like guy's pretty big deal. Well, yes. But not only that, I would say in terms of the actual industry itself, he made his mark by basically creating the industry. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but when he got into the business sports agency wasn't really even like a full-fledged industry. Like he sort of revolutionized that. And so just kind of, you would be able to explain it better than I did when Lee got his start and became what he did kind of explain like what he did for the industry. That wasn't even really a thing yet. So he kind of, you hate to use the word lucked into it, but he kind of did. He was uh, a room advisor at, I think Cal Berkeley. And he just so happened to be assigned to, the athletic dorms and then he gets his law degree one of the kids he was close with from his ra need uh goes to the nfl and it's like yeah i would like somebody to do this uh work for me like you want to do it for me and that literally is how it started um you can read up more about it i know he'll tell the story better than i will but it was one of those big breaks that he just turned into more and more and more and uh it's just kind of a crazy story. You mentioned Googling that book or excuse me, Google, yeah, Googling and finding that book and then ending up at the conference. Clearly at that point, as someone who aspired to get in the industry, you knew who he was, but as someone who went out there with you, went to his office, met the guy, like it's when you get out there, you get into his office and you get like, 
you get a better grasp of like who this guy actually is and like how big of a stick he actually hits with. <laughs> At what point did you sort of fully grasp like, oh, oh like this guy is that this is the man? <laughs> yeah, I kind of have a funny story to tell myself for that. I uh, get out there and when you get to Newport Beach, man, especially being from Mississippi, it just hits different out there. It's <laughs> it a, a different world. I uh, first day of my internship, I'm in my brand new suit that I get like all fitted up for myself. I'm ready to go for my first day of my internship um, for this guy. And I'm cruising down the Pacific Coast Highway, down that hill that you love so much that you uh, you love to jog up and down when you were there. And you're looking over the ocean and everything. And I mean, I had windows down. I was feeling myself. It was one of those one of those great moments going to my first day of this internship. So I get there. I walk into this office, and everybody is in shorts and t-shirts, and it's moving day. It is moving day. I didn't get the memo. So I'm there in my suit, my new like shoes that have not been broken in, which any guy knows in the business world. Walking into your first day of work with a new pair of shoes is not fun. You're going to get blisters. And it's moving day. And I moved the whole office with like three other interns who did get the memo of to wear shorts and t-shirts. We're moving offices. And I was throwing away trash. I like got a stain on my new shirt. It was one of those like, all right, kid, take a, take a chill pill. You're, you're nothing special right now. So it was uh, a funny welcome to the industry moment for me. Yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. I don't even actually know if I knew that story. That's <laughs> not only the shoes really part of it, it, but like how in the, like just moving with the jacket and a nice button down sounds thoroughly miserable, even in that nice California weather. Did you fully grasp, though, when you got out there who he was and kind of the power he had? I'm sure you read up on it, even if yeah. you didn't get the full scope. Like for me. When you were like, hey, you got to come meet this guy. I think it was probably like the pick of him just kicking it with Kevin Costner in like a little frame. Right. Like other people would have their kids on his desk and stuff like that. Was there uh -huh. a moment where you fully grasped like, OK, this guy kind of knows everyone and represents not literally everyone, but figuratively? Yes. Yeah. So I should have wrapped that answer up a little better for you. It was then when I was moving all of his pictures and it's like him and Cuba Gooding Jr. and Tom Cruise posing together for Jerry Maguire. It's. Troy Aitman signed jerseys. There's professional Hall of Fame footballs left and right. And that's what I'm moving just like very casually um, across, you know, from upstairs to downstairs. And that was when I was like, yeah, this was uh, maybe a little bit bigger than I uh, first realized. And for that, like, it's it's not the uh, it's not, hey, here's me and Kevin Costner shaking hands. It's like, hey, here's yeah. us kicking it on a boat, maybe a bottle of Vuv in the background. Who knows? Like it was <laughs> it was that was not the first time they'd hang out type of stuff. And that's when it's kind of a whole different level. And the other part of that, too, is like so you were lucky. Like I was first starting actually a podcast back then. And I had one had no idea what I was doing Two really had no any sort of connections to guests and you're like lee loves doing podcasts and i was like really so he'd hop on this random one <laughs> in mississippi and you're like yeah if you just get him i'll get him on the schedule he'd be happy to do it <laughs> it's funny not that i didn't expect him to remember me at all I, I knew that's what came with it but like you could tell that this guy just sat with a lot of famous people and had a lot going on because i think i was out there and we got it we made the podcast thing happen within about two weeks and 
when I got him on like the phone or whatever, he had, he could not have told, like he had no idea who I was. I don't think he knew that you connected me. It was just kind of the next thing throughout his day. And I'm like, this guy is uh, kind of on a uh, d- different level. Um, you did warn me that if you have seen that movie, he just probably not the greatest move to walk up to him and ask him to say, show me the money. I refrained from that. It took a lot of restraint, but uh, I think I made it through the entire interview without him doing that, but it was great. He told some stories. He has that famous story. I think it was like the bears or someone where he like came out with the water gun after some pretty atten- contentious negotiations. I, I imagine if that guy ever writes a book, that's just about like the stuff he did, that would be a pretty fascinating one. What did, uh, what was the, what was kind of, I don't want to say the main thing. What did you learn out there? Like what was the most IR opening part about the industry or just working for him in general? So a couple of things I got to see all of the really cool and glamorous sides of what uh, being a sports agent really is about. So I got to go see what a production shoot looked at like at uh, the Sony pictures. I got to meet Patrick Mahomes doing all of that kind of thing. But then I also got to see the flip side of all the hard work. And, uh, you know, for every one day you get like that, it's three months of hard work. Um, that it takes to uh, be able to set that kind of stuff up. It's not all the glitz and glamor every day. Most of it's chugging away in an office, on phone calls, being diligent and everything along those lines. But the second part of that, the biggest thing I got to learn, which was incredibly lucky, was I was out there right when California posted or released their uh, Senate Bill 206, which was the first NIL uh, bill out there before NIL was NIL. It was like the fair play, fair pay to play act. And I was a law student. So I was all over it. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do your research. I'll uh, set you up and tee you up for all of your podcasts, all of your articles and everything along those lines. So I got to have some real high level conversations um, about this new groundbreaking bill that has since two years, three years later turned in uh, to a real benefit to me trying to start this business, actually knowing the origin of all of this and how we got to where we are and what you can and can't do. And like the real ins and outs of what the bill is meant to be and the good and bad sides of what NIL is. So that was probably, that has to be the biggest uh, strike of luck I had from that. Yeah, because I think particularly you talking about knowing the origin of it and where it came from, that's really what got the ball rolling on the broader NIL movement. And I remember being someone just working in sports and probably needing to have a loose handle on it when it was coming, because I think we probably all knew this day when I say this day, whatever it was back summer uh, 2021, where they finally made it all legal. Cause you remember that became like that hit, like that became legal at midnight or whatever. And you had Bo Nix like tweeting out a sweet tea sponsorship at 1204. Like once the ball got rolling, everyone was prepared. And when you talk about like the legislation of all of it and how it's regulated and all that, it confuses the hell out of me. But I imagine even as dense as it is complex, it can be knowing where it started and knowing the origin and kind of having a two year head start on it had to be pretty invaluable. Yeah, just because you know the purpose of what it's supposed to be, man. You know you can't do all these creative loopholes and try to uh, take advantage of what's going on. You know the basics of of what the benefits are and what the detriments are just from simply seeing it from the first time, reading that bill. And then also he was doing media on this um, with local California radios and uh, news channels to where, like, you know, you got to hear some of the – again, just the ins and outs 
before all of it even happened, which played extremely valuable when, so Mississippi has a bill out there. And when I was reading through that and learning that it was, I mean, it was like second nature to me. I understood it. I got what you can and can't do, which translated into when I actually pulled off the NIL deals, it was, uh, you know, I felt confident in it. I knew what to do. I knew the, uh, you know, the intricacies of how to clear a contract through the compliance department, just because again, I knew, I knew what the purpose of all of it was from the beginning. So that was extremely beneficial. Did you learn anything from working for Lee out there from a, uh, I don't want to say how to conduct yourself, but just to be wary and kind of stay focused and never necessarily get content or complacent with where you're at. And that's probably a harder question to answer now because you're just starting this out, but right. whether you've seen the movie or know the background or anything like that, Lee had kind of the highest of highs and then he really had a steep fall from grace. And it's honestly very impressive that he's built himself back up to where he is today. You know, he lands the Mahomes deal and all of that. So in a lot of ways, it's still a comeback story being written, but you want to talk about a high and then a crash and burn. And there are a lot of factors that went into that. It wasn't just professional stuff. It was personal stuff and you know, everyone battles demons or whatever, but did you learn anything about whether it's perseverance or how to handle yourself and make sure that doesn't happen? Did you learn anything from like the personal side of it as well? So the one thing I do want to note on that is it was on, honestly one of the biggest things that I learned was from your podcast where you told he told the story of sitting at a Super Bowl and he had the starting quarterbacks for both teams and also I think the backup quarterbacks for both teams and you asked him something along the lines of like man did you take a step back and like enjoy all of this and realize it and he kind of kind of st- like sat for a second and I don't think he fully did he said something along the lines of I was more worried about the next year's class coming through instead of being able to sit back and enjoy it and that was something that really hit home to me that I want to to make sure I incorporate into everything I do with this practice even something as simple as this uh podcast with you is I want to enjoy this process man I uh dreamed about it a long time I really have worked hard to get to where I am too. So man, I'm going to enjoy it as much as I can um, because it can crash and burn at the end. There's no telling what will happen. Um, there's no telling that this uh, becomes successful. I'm pretty confident that it will, but you never know. So I do want to enjoy moments um, throughout this journey, like launching everything last week was so cool to me, man. Every, all the support, all the love I've gotten from, people that I haven't heard from in years that I haven't seen from co- since college or since high school or like, you know, my aunt and uncle's best friend, something along those lines, just reaching out means so much to me. And it was so just a really cool moment for me to be able to share everything with everyone and get the positive support back. Uh, again, just, just trying to enjoy all of this as much as I can, because it's, it's pretty cool, man. It really is. Yeah, it is awesome. And like, there's a lot of things that go into that and, uh, you know, kind of going out on your own and taking a chance. But I think that is good perspective to have because I don't remember which Super Bowl it was, but you're exactly right. Cause I just remember when he said that in the moment, I couldn't even remember what the, which one of the clients were. I think it was a Troy Aikman versus someone Super Bowl, but yeah, I was just maybe sitting the there Steelers thinking, or somebody. Yeah, that would, that would make sense. I mean, and for those of you that hadn't picked it up by now, the NFL like marketplace in terms of like, there's not like the Scott Boris of the NFL per se, but this guy was that for the NFL and pretty much all other sports at a time. And you name it, Steve McNair, you go on down the list. I mean, he's 
the his website, I don't think can fit all the Hall of Famers on the front page uh, on it. Like it, he had just about everybody. And I remember when he told me that, I was like, damn, did you just look around? Because I imagine if you're sitting there watching the Super Bowl, drinking some nice-ass champagne, watching the game, like, I represent both quarterbacks here. I would just be like, I don't know how it gets better than this. But to your point, like, he's worried about next year's clients. And there's some there's an admirable aspect of that, right? You're just kind of driven. But you can get caught up in that and lost in it as well. And so, as you mentioned, enjoying the process and enjoying everything that goes into it is uh, – is certainly a, a, the way to look at it and the way to go about it too. And so you mentioned kind of getting everything started up and we talked about this before for a while as you were kind of getting everything built up half the battle. And this is even a sports agency lesson is just a life lesson. And mine was on a much smaller scale, but like when I got out here doing like the marketing for the uh, grease company and all that, and I'd left journalism full time, I was kind of bored. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I came up with every excuse in the world, like not to start the newsletter, not to start the podcast. And it was really all just bullshit. Like none of those reasons actually mattered. But half the battle, I think, is just kind of sitting down and eliminating the fear of failure. Because I finally just got to the point where I was like, if this flops, like who gives a shit? What does it matter? Like It's not my full time job. Like I'm not I'm going to enjoy this regardless. So like who cares? And then, you know, four months later, I would never have thought, you know, we're doing this through Rebel Grove and the podcast is doing well and all that. That's not really the point, but just eliminating the fear of failure and getting it out there is, is probably half the battle, right? Because once you got into it, I imagine building it was actually a gigantic source of motivation. It was just starting the process. Yeah. So once you start the process, so before I get into that, I had a conversation with Neil McCready, who does uh, it's Rebel Grove, right? No, it's, yeah, yeah, uh, we're, uh, yeah, it's we're, Rebel Grove, right? Exactly, exactly. I didn't want to mess that up, but I had a call with him and was just kind of going through, like, feeling out, should I do this or not? And he really just drove it home as of you don't want to look back on this in ten years, regretting you didn't do it. You don't have a family, you don't have kids, like, do it, man. He said something along the lines of like like that exactly of just like screw it like if it doesn't work it doesn't work but at least you know in 10 years if you're doing another job that you tried and that was the really an eye-opening light bulb type moment for me of like yeah let's do it and then the way I started building on it was every single day I tried to just do one sports agent thing so like one thing for the business whether it's reaching out via email to somebody trying to do an NIL deal whether it's getting my business formed with the state of Mississippi, whether it's X, Y, Z. And that has built on itself to now, um, you know, three months later, I'm doing four to five things a day, um, just right off the either shooting a text, same type thing of it starts with one thing that you just have to do. Um, and once you do that and build on that day by day, um, to use the generic, you know, brick by brick, but that's really how, how it all starts. Um, and you can't be afraid to fail. Like your point, you, you got to get over that fear of failure. So after school, like what goes into starting it? Cause you go out there after school and to give everyone a little bit of background, when you talk about doing the one agency a th- day, when you're starting out trying to create your own thing, you're still working a day job too. So it's a balance as well. Like you've, you've got to make time for it. And if it's something you want to chase, like you've, you've, you've got to kind of like sit down. I think the one thing a day is a great way to look at it, but you go back out after school and you work for Lee for a little bit, and then you go from Newport to Boston. Like, take me up to the moment of like going back out there, realizing like you need to do something a little different or go out on your own. 
and then up to where you guys just moved, you and Danny just moved to Boston. Um, and I guess that was August. Shit, time flies by. But like, I guess when you're coming out of school, the best way to ask this is I imagine most people who don't know anything about it think, oh, you probably need to go like try to find a job with an agency. Take me through the process of leaving school, going to Newport and then figuring out, hey, me doing this on my own actually might be the way to go. What goes into that? Yes. Yeah, so I went out to after I graduate law school, take the bar exam. Um, it was middle of coronavirus times. I mean, I didn't I didn't have a law job lined up. I really wasn't trying to find a law job. Um, and I just knew in the back of my mind that Lee would have some sort of work for me. Um, and if not, I figured I'd be able to find a job out in Newport doing something. I we wanted to go give the adventure of living in Newport Beach a try. Um, we didn't have a plan. We didn't really have anything other than the adventure streak in us. Let's go at least live in Newport Beach for a year. So I get out there. I shoot him a text. And he's like, yeah, I have some uh, legal work you can do. And I acted as a consultant for him doing legal work um, for about nine months. And then my girlfriend, Danny, gets this job here in Boston that was just too good of an opportunity to, to stay in Newport Beach. So I have to make the decision do I keep sitting here doing this legal work, not exactly being an agent um, and try this whole cross country deal? Um, and obviously I, I decided against that. So I moved to Boston. Um, I went like three months, not really finding a job, nothing sticking, uh, trying to work for the sports teams here. Just none of that worked to where it really did hit that point where I had that conversation with Neil of, yeah, just start your own. Um, that's kind of, kind of what's left. Uh, if you want this to happen, then agent's not giving you the job. So you got to start your own or it's not going to happen. And that really, once I came to that realization that it was, it was on me to put up or shut up, uh, that's just how it started. And then it turned into the, just like I said earlier, one thing a day, um, type deal. So what, where do you start? Like, what is starting the process like? Like, it, what, what was the first step? Because there's a million different things you could do, right? It's built, like, oh, for one, probably need a website. Uh, business card, probably needed, but not on the high on the priority list. Two, the client thing's important. Like, where do you start when all that process yeah. is happening? Okay, so my, my biggest thing was I had to take the NFL PA agents exam in late July. Um, I was supposed to take it the year before coronavirus nixed that idea. They uh, canceled the, the test completely for a year. So once I uh, sat and took that test, I was like, I passed that. I knew I passed it. I knew I knew the ins and outs of the salary cap. I knew I nailed that test. So that was the first confidence of, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to have that credential. What's the so, studying like that for though? Like on the scale of like the bar to anything else, how, like what's the work and how, how hard was that to pass? Yes. Yeah, so compared to the bar, man, it was nothing okay. uh, straight up. Like it was open notes. It was, you know, they give you um, probably 600 to a thousand pages worth of material that includes the collective bargaining agreement, the substance abuse policy, uh, the steroids policy, the injury policy, it ends up being about a thousand pages worth of material. So uh, open book part of it doesn't help you very much unless you're dialed in and you know how all of that works. So what I did is I just organized all of that and I actually took a study course. It's this uh, 
this website called Inside the League. This guy offers, his name's Neil Stratton. He offers these practice tests with explanations of how you find these answers. And between studying for that and knowing the, uh, that big pamphlet of like a thousand page binder and having that tabbed up necessary where I could just flip and if I didn't know the answer right off the bat, I'd be able to find it. Um, so that's what that study and process looked like. And once I took the test, I knew, you know, I probably overprepared for it. But what's wild is um, there's a ton of people that took this test. And man, only 40% of people passed the test. So 60% of test takers failed this test. And uh, that was just a kind of wow moment for me that, you know, I may, uh, I may know what I'm doing here. Why did you pick? Because I'm, I'm guessing, I think you've told me this before, there's one for the NBA and the MLB. Why the NFL? Yeah, so I, you know, going all the way back to when this dream started, for some reason the NFL agent was always just the most attractive career path for me. Um, I think it's being in the NFL industry is, I mean, pretty wild. That would be, it's pretty cool to, uh, pretty cool to be a part of an organization that uh, pretty much owns the day of the week. Uh, for what, 17 to 20 months a year. The NFL um, alpha is Jesus. It is the NFL's day. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm fully complicit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and then just the fact that I did work for an NFL agent just made that much more sense to, to take that test. Um, I would like to play around with doing the MLB um, track, but I'm just not there yet. Just the way the internship worked out, I knew how to take that test. I knew what went into it. And I, that's the business of sports that I know the best. Um, so that's kind of what's led me to, to NFL. If you ever do the NBA one and you have a full grasp on the NBA salary cap and collective bargaining agreement, I might have like you tested for like where you are on like the rain man spectrum. Cause that stuff is impossible to understand. Um, that just seems incredibly complicated. That was a complete non sequitur. So you get that out of the way. And then what's next? So you're trying to build it up. Like, are you, are you having to get everything in line first before you worry about connections? Because I know that's such a connection driven industry. Once you get that under your mm -hmm. belt, what's next? So I try to try to balance it. Right. So I went back and forth with reaching out connection wise, but also my connections won't hit well. And if I have nothing behind me to show for it. So that's where I had to get into some branding aspects. Like, I needed a website. I needed social media pages. I needed my story out there to be able to, to bolster my networking. So I'm sitting there and I'm actually uh, keeping up with your Twitter page. And I see you have Jacob Lovett, um, the local Dallas Fort, Fort Worth. Worth. Painter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I remember him from college. We were actually pretty good buddies. Uh, so I've, reached out to you and I was like, Hey, I know this guy will, I was looking for a logo, nothing further than a logo, but I, I knew I needed a logo. So I was like, Rippy, will you, you know, share, share his number with me. And he did, you did. And I just shot him a text and was like, Hey man, this is what I'm starting. Um, I need a logo. Can you help me? Do you want to like, have a phone call? He's like, yeah, let's have a phone call like tomorrow. So we get on the phone and he opens my mind to all this other stuff that he can help me with. So I'm incredibly lucky. This is the, uh, the power of your podcast, man. Um, connecting, connecting to people that uh, kind of are similar in, in the track they're taking. And man, Jacob uh, not only got me set up with 
a logo. He got my marketing plan done. We worked hand in hand. I have like a marketing playbook. And he also did um, my entire website. He just, all I had to go do was take my pictures. Um, He directed me of what I should and shouldn't kind of, you know, do. We worked really well hand in hand throughout about a three months process that ended last week. Um, So that was how the entire branding aspect came in because I realized there's certain things that you have to outsource if you're going to run a business well. And there's certain things that you have to do your own. You can't outsource everything, but you also can't do everything. And I, I realized after talking to him once that he was the guy to outsource all of my marketing and uh, business foundation on that, that aspect of side of things. And that's, uh, again, we started working together, I think late August and uh, we wrapped everything up. Um, last Wednesday and launched it. Yeah, that's all. That's what we do on this podcast. We connect people. We move product. I mean, Weldon and I are a huge fucking deal over the pond. We have brought soccer to America. It's really I've the reason. Yeah. The reason the reach and bounds of this podcast really is just limitless. Um, so, so I imagine that happening though, like particularly with a guy with not only a creative view, you know, visually and which I, the furthest, I, one of the reasons I wanted to have him on, because I was like, this could be so bad but so awesome at the same time. Like I'm colorblind. Like I could don't know, begin the process to start. Let me just pepper this guy with stupid questions. And it turned out to be very interesting. Um, I actually got a decent bit of feedback on that one from, you know, for being the dead middle of summer and having a painter on a football show, it was a, uh, I thought it was fairly well received. So I imagine when you get that to decide, not him handling it completely like for you and you're not having to like consult right. with him, but just having that shifting your focus more toward the connection side. How are you? Let's start with NIL first, because I imagine you have to know the rules of the game. What's the balance of trying to get already established guys that are already professional athletes versus college guys? Because I know one of the things, one of the notes you sent me was um, if you don't sign an NFL client within three years, you have to go take that test again, which as you outlined is no, no walk in the park by any stretch. So once you get it passed and you're trying to look for clientele, like how do you, how do you zero in on a target market, particularly as this NIL stuff is coming along? So it's like, do I go after college or college kids or guys that are already in the pros? What is that like? And that's just one hell of a question. I wish I had an answer to it. Just all <laughs> but, over? No. So, I mean, my strategy is right now, dude, I can't get uh, a first, second, third, even fourth rounder. Um, that is outside of the scope of what I can do with NFL stuff. You have to train these guys, you have to fork over a lot of cash for their training. You have to fork over cash for them to have a place to live. You have to have their, uh, their rental car. I mean, you have to pay for their girlfriend to fly in from across the country to see them for a weekend. And I don't think I'm running a good business right now if I'm forking over 50000 bucks to sign uh, to try to go after a kid that may or may not make me money in four years because you don't really make money off of these guys until they make their second contract simply because of the upfront costs it takes to train, um, train them from the time they finish their college football season to the time they get drafted. And then you don't receive, you can't bill a client until they get their game check. So best case scenario, if I did go after an NFL kid and got a big time client, I still wouldn't recognize any money on that whatsoever until week one next year 
So that's quite a risk, especially not knowing exactly what I'm doing. So I'm finding the balance of going after really late round guys or undrafted free agents who I can be real with and be like, hey, you're a long shot to make it. I'm a long shot to make it right now. Let's at least work on this together. I can probably help out with some of your expenses, but man, I cannot fork over $25,000 for you to live off me for four months. I'm glad you went there because it's interesting when you have these agencies and everyone thinks of the Lee Steinbergs or the Jimmy Sextons of the world. Well, once you get established and once you have success, it becomes a hell of a lot easier. And really it becomes, I mean, it, gamble is probably a decent word to put it, but it's gambling or investing. It's, it's putting, you mentioned the amount of like cash you have to fork over to get these guys ready. I think that's part of, that's something people don't understand about the process. I was actually talking to Wilson Fur this summer, the kid out of Alabama from Jackson that has uh, mm-hmm. just turned professional, went through his Q school this fall. Well, he was a highly rated kid. It's a little different in golf, but he was a highly rated kid. He was a highly rated recruit. He was a decorated college player. So he was of the upper tier in golf to where there's going to be agent interest in him coming out of school. Whereas like a guy, my buddy Hayden Buckley, who's on tour now might not be the greatest example. When he came out, he was a former walk on the agency. Wasn't even the cards. I was talking to fur and he was like, I was like, how do you make your schedule? How do you figure out which Monday qualifiers to play? How do you figure out where you need to live? Like in terms of practice facility. And he's like, honestly, dude, I got lucky that an agent wanted me because they handle every single bit of that from from start to finish. And I'm just, he's not at their mercy, but like, he's like, I'm listening to them and they handle travel, all of that. And it's on their dime because of course he doesn't have any money. And so I think that's probably a misconception about the process is, Oh, why don't you just go try to buddy up with, you know, name your second, third round pick. It's like, well, that doesn't really work that way. Like, because everything is up front and you're getting paid on the back end. And when you're not started up yet, you don't have the capital to make the investment is a simple way to put it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And man, I don't have the heart or the confidence to try to go do rounds of investing and potentially waste $200,000 of somebody else's money um, for, you know, three bad uh, clients that don't make it, which could either happen through injury, which is very likely, or they just simply don't make the cut. So my business doesn't work right now to where I'm able to do that. So that is, I guess, a good segue into like where I am trying to do the NIL as well. So I, uh, is that just, made it easier to get in the industry? Do you think? Yeah. And it also keeps the, uh, the likelihood of this succeeding extremely more, extremely more likely because you can develop relationships with these guys, these girls, and actually have a little bit of money to coming in. Because uh, you, you know, if you're their marketing agent, you charge them a small fee, um, and it just keeps. It also increases the chance of you know you making a good relationship with somebody who's a freshman, and hopefully by the time three years down the road, you've had such a good working relationship with them that you're their trusted guy. You can at least get that meeting of let me be your NFL agent. Whereas right now I wouldn't even be able to get a meeting with some of these guys. I can't get a meeting with some of these guys. Um, so yeah, the NIL has really helped out the, the likelihood of me being able to pull this off um, full time. And also the likelihood of uh, creating that relationship with, with a kid early on. And you have clients like, by the way, and you mentioned you know, everything NFL wise, but I imagine at this point, like, you're not discriminating in terms of who you're representing and it's all about kind of building up a base. 
kind of take me through who you have right now. I would imagine I'll spoil one of them because the old miss listeners would know Ben Van Cleve is one of them. Yeah. So exact, actually I gotta be very clear with that, that planners proud campaign. Okay. I was not their uh, agent. So the way this worked was um, back to when I was starting all this off one one call a day, one text a day, I get up linked up with, the CEO of Planners Bank, which um, for you non-Mississippi people, it's a very small localized regional bank, but it's also growing because the bank industry right now, you're either, I think, growing or you're getting purchased. Regardless, I have a conversation with him because I knew his son. I grew up playing baseball with his son and uh, pretty good family, friends with the family, all of those things to where he trusted me enough to think the idea was cool to uh, have an NIL campaign. So technically, when I did this with planners, I was consulting for the bank because I was trying to figure out what the heck all of this looks like. I wanted to be able to get a, uh, a deal done through compliance departments the right way. I needed to know what a contract looked like. So it was a real sweetheart deal for me, actually, that he gave me uh, a list of like where people athletes were uh, from. So their hometown, he wanted to have kids from where his bank had branches locally to be able to sponsor them in these deals. So that is how that went. I, I scoured all the roster lists and if they kids were from, you know, uh, Indianola, Mississippi or Tunica, Mississippi or Olive Branch. Um, then uh, we made a list of about 20 kids and then we narrowed it down to six that would work. Um, and I reached out to them through, uh, through, um, uh, Instagram DM. And it's just like, Hey, I got this opportunity for this bank. I'm an NFL agent. I'm starting my company. I know I don't have any sort of uh, website and nothing along those lines, but the opportunities here, if you want it. And all of them were like, yeah, of course. And that allowed me to be able to, to do the agent work, but it was actually working for the bank. So those kids are not my clients, okay. but now that I have this website out there and everything under me. And I have confidence that I can uh, look their parents in the face and say, I know what I'm doing with NIL. Now I'm going after clients. So that's a big distinction that uh, you can't really, you can't really explain except for on uh, a platform like this. Like I'm not writing all of that Instagram caption, right? No, sure. That, that definitely makes sense. And speaking of not being able to explain stuff as you're kind of getting into the or kind of zeroing in your focus a little bit in the college athlete NIL aspect of it when everything hit the fan this summer and NIL became legal and it all started flowing out it's you're seeing these ridiculous numbers from folks whether it's Bryce Young or name your you know name your NIL athlete and like I think that's a prime example of no one really knowing what the hell is going on because I think eventually there'll be some sort of market correction because when all this happened, there was no market. People just started throwing out money and it's like, right. like I'm not, I'm, I'm for all these kids getting all the money that they want. But at a certain point, I mean, if the, you know, for you know, the Quinn Ewers kid, the uh, he's out at, he's at Ohio state. He was out at South Lake Carroll out here in this area. He leaves to take an, you know, seven figure NIL deal, skip his senior year. Like I imagine at a certain point if enough kids don't pan out, some of these companies are going to be like, probably not forking over seven figures for a kid that doesn't see the field. So there was no like guidance. There was no real kind of diagrams of how this is supposed to work. And I think that is kind of 
correlated over is sort of mirrors the legislative side of this. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you like what Congress is going to do for all the, like everything in NIL wise, but it's interesting. Every state is different. And so I imagine it helps that, you know, you're a Mississippi guy, you kind of have a, you know, one foot in the door with regard to some Mississippi people, but if you're able to expand your reach and, you know, represent kids that are in other schools and other states, how do you keep all of what's allowed and what's not allowed state by state basis? If that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just going to be tough, right? Um, so Mississippi has a bill. So I know the ins and outs of that. And uh, speaking of your market, one of the laws, one of the clauses says something along the lines of you have to pay. Um, like it has to be with a fair market value, something like that. And it's like, well, what's the market? So that will certainly, I'm guessing, change um, because I don't think companies are going to see a a very great return on that million-dollar investment. I don't know. That's not in my profession. But so right now I'm in Massachusetts. I live in Boston, and I'm a licensed attorney here. So when I decided to move here, I switched. I, I transferred my law license to Massachusetts. And there's no no law in place here. So I'm just going to base what I know of what you can and can't do. Some very simple, like, you know, you can't have kids doing a beer commercial. You can't have them doing gambling. No, they call it the vice categories. Sure. Um, but the compliance departments, because there is a bill in Mississippi, the Ole Miss and the Mississippi State compliance departments, there's a very intricate procedure that you have to follow. Here in Massachusetts, that is not a thing. So uh, after, after Christmas, I'm hitting it hard here in Boston and actually have uh, some potential things lined up and we'll see how that goes. But I'm going to, uh, you know, follow the law. I'm, you know, by what I learned in Mississippi and uh, clear it with the athletic departments, um, see what they have to do, uh, see what they have to say, and also clear it with all the kids' parents. And, and we're going to go from there until there's an actual law in place. But they are doing... NIL deal, deals here in Boston and in Massachusetts, there's just no formal law in place. You're looking into a kid on the ice, right? Hockey player. Yeah, that's uh, actually a pretty wild story. Um, so um, there's this pizza place right down the road. Danny and I are living in what's called the North End of Boston. So it's Little Italy. It's where uh, Paul Revere's house is, the uh, – the old North church. So the one, if by land two if by sea church, it's a real, real cool little small community. And we're going to this pizza place and we're standing in one of the lines to get in because it's like the best pizza in Boston, which I'll, I'll vouch for. I think it is. Um, it's called, called Regina's, but we're in like this 30 person line and we made it, you know, probably five, 10, 15 minutes. We're starting. Everybody's waited in the line to get into a small restaurant. So this man who's the manager is coming through, checking how many people are in uh, each party. So, you know, we got four here. We got two here. We got six here, blah, blah, blah. He gets to Danny and I and goes, two? I'm like, yep. He goes, date night. And we said, yeah, yeah, I, I guess it is date night. We're both in like sweats and tennis shoes. I mean, it wasn't date night, but it was date night. So he goes, okay, I'll be back. And he goes through the end of the line. Comes back, no lie, five minutes later, just hollering, date night, date night, come on, like, come on. So he puts his arms around us and leads us into this restaurant. I mean, we cut like 30 people just because he happened to take a liking to us. 
So I at least had the wherewithal to be like, hey, man, we just moved here. We don't know anybody, but we live in this community. And that just turned his his lights on. And he just took care of us the entire night. I mean, he was coming over to sit by us. He put us like in his favorite booth. I mean, it was crazy. So that's a very long winded story to get to the point of I developed this friendship with this guy go out to dinner with him, get to tell him all about what I'm doing with the sports agency. I'm trying to get in on NIL deals in Massachusetts. I don't know how to. And he goes, oh, I, I know a lot of hockey players. Are you interested in hockey? And I was like, yeah, why the hell not? I don't know much about hockey, but this place is like the hockey capital of the world. So one thing leads to another, and I'm eating pizza with these uh, college hockey players here. And I just had had a meeting with one of them and his parents last week. And I think we have it in the works that I think I may have a hockey client here pretty soon that we're going to hit the ground running in Boston come uh, 2022. That is uh that's pretty sick. So that is that, does he have teeth? <laughs> yeah, he does have teeth. I'll give it to him. He's a very uh, marketable kid. He's well-spoken, uh, has the looks, has the brain. Like it was one of those that uh, sometimes just, Weird things like that happen and you can't question it. Like certain people come into your life or you just get connected to other people to where if you think about it too much, it kind of blows your mind. And I'm just thankful that our paths crossed and that I got connected because that's that could be my I think that's my end in Boston. If I I start with one hockey player and and we go from there, because once you get one client, you get two. Once you get two, you get three and just you just have to have that first client. And uh, between that here in Boston and my uh, I'll go after kids in Mississippi at uh, Delta State, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Southern, um, anything I can get my hands on because I'm trying to get to the point where I do this full time. Um, and I'm not going to be able to do NFL agent stuff full time again because of the money aspect for quite a while. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And like getting back a little bit to the legislative part of it, it's fascinating was I was reading all this stuff this summer, trying to gain a better understanding of how all this is going to go down. And honest to God, it just made me more confused. But the one thing I gathered from it was because it's like, look, Mark Emmert is getting no sympathy from anyone anytime soon. Probably one of the least likable figures. Look, if there's a, you know, social media like rating system that guy is bottom of the bottom no one's feeling bad for him anytime soon particularly when you look at the paycheck he's taking home but when they were doing all those hearings and stuff with congress this summer i almost like kind of felt bad for the guy because he's sitting there begging all these legislators to implement some sort of national legislation and he kind of has a point because if it's all these hodgepodge of different state laws and there's you know uniform set of like rules one it's going to be impossible to enforce which i don't really care and i don't think anyone cares about that part because just give these kids their money type of deal but it is kind of a circus and it would seem like easier to navigate if there was one national set of laws rules whatever you want to call it to kind of go by instead of having to go state by state but it yeah. seems a little fortuitous that you're in a place that doesn't really have anything at all and kind of anything goes and i know you're trying to do things by the book but even in a state like mississippi there's no like enforcement, like no one's going to spend government resources to go try to bust kids on an NIL deal. And so like, I, I, how do you, does that change the way you, like, do you view a deal differently in Mississippi versus one in Boston? Or is it just a matter of having to go through the athletic department there to where not having to red tape anything in Boston? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's just going to be a pretty similar framework. Again, back to like the no vice categories, you don't need to use school logos. There's some very common and basic understandings of what you should and shouldn't do with these type deals. Like, yeah, I can set them up with a pizza joint here. I can't set them up with the nightclub. I can set them up with a bank here. I don't need to set them up with a casino. Things of that sort, I'm going to use the same framework that was laid out in Mississippi and follow that to the best of my ability here in Massachusetts. And I will, of course, do more research, but, uh, you know, there's nothing out there. So I would love for there to be one uh, uniform law to follow. So I would be confident with, with what I'm doing. But I mean, it's all pretty basic stuff, man. None of, sure. these, none of what I'm doing right now is going to get me rich. It's not going to get the kids rich. We're just trying to, again, build that foundation, their marketing skills. We're going to teach them networking. We're going to let them know how to work a room at an event. And we also might get them like 500 to a thousand bucks, 1500 bucks a semester, which, you know, I mean, I would, I would have loved that a couple of years ago, a couple extra, you know, a thousand extra bucks for two or three hours of work. But uh, the kids are love it so much, man, that planner's proud campaign I did. Uh, the one story I want to share is there's a girl from, uh, it's Ruleville or Drew, Mississippi. So they're very close to each other, but she was more excited about getting the jersey with her name on the back than she was getting the check from the bank. So like, it's so pure and fun. If you yeah. look at it that way to where I'm sitting there trying to like taking myself probably a little too seriously. And this girl is just smiling ear to ear for a planner's bank jersey with her name on the back to where, I mean, that is how I'm going at it with these NIL deals. If I can help these kids have fun, help them see the, uh, the intricacies of what a film shoot looks like and what a contract looks like, then man, I'm back to my fundamentals of my business. I'm creating positive change in local communities. So that, uh, that is overshadowing right now. The fact that there is no law in place, I, I guess. When you talked about market value earlier, and I imagine people who don't know much about the sports agency industry think it's, you know, someone walking into a front office room and kind of playing hardball with, you know, someone in the, the GM guy and the salary cap guy and being like, here's what my client deserves, kind of the baseball arbitration model. But we just outlined earlier, there really is no like set market value of anything right now, particularly as it pertains to the NIL. I remember I was trying to, Again, trying to get a handle on this, like at the end of the summer, right for football season. And I was talking to someone that would know what kind of corrals NIL thing was. And they gave me a number and they're like, here's what they're kind of thinking. And I was like, well, where'd you get that? And they're like, it's just the number. I was like, well, why didn't you go higher? Like, it's just the number. And so when you're trying, I was like, so this, you're just like, it pretty much just kind of pulled out of thin air. Like, really? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's, you know, a reasonable and unreasonable amount, but when you're, you know, in the process of trying to get these kids deals, as you mentioned, you know, it's, we're not talking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars here, but how do you try to determine what's fair and what's the negotiation process? Like if there is any. Yes. So when I did the ones with the bank, man, I just had had the conversation with the CEO of what do you think's fair? What, what would be enough to, uh, not entice them is not the right word, but like make it worth their while sure. to be excited and do this. And we, uh, we decided on a number. I'm not, you know, I can't, sh I'm not supposed to share that out loud. So I'm not going to, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like we decided on a number that like 
again, man, as uh, any time in college, I would have loved having that extra cash for an hour and a half of my time. Um, and that's kind of how he went off of it, of what would be worth their hour and a half of time to do this film. And again, dude, what was crazy was just the fact that I think every single one of them would have done it without the check. Right. Like, they all had so much fun doing it. And the kid, the hockey kids I talked to here, they're almost shaking thinking just about the opportunity of like having marketing campaigns. Um, but I think when it comes to like an Instagram post or something, like if you're throwing a, like a brand ambassador deal or something, like it comes into like you get 15% of sales or using your discount or like we'll pay you a hundred bucks to, to post this picture. Um, something along those lines, unless it's uh, a large brand. But again, I'm not to even the, the point of my career to try to do some sort of large brand. It's all local, small stuff that we're figuring out that's going to be the best uh, for the business and also for the kids. Yeah, that makes sense. And you get into like the, I mean, even in like other industries, you get into like the social media aspect. It's probably partially why like the journalism industry is failing. It's like, well, like look how many impressions this is getting. It's like, what the, what does that actually mean? Like, I mean, people at contracts get ESPN at ESPN part based off like their social media following. It's like, how do you know Mm -hmm. this is not fake? So it's all, it's, it's all a very gray area. And it's, it's interesting to try to like navigate and negotiate through because I mean, to take it like way back, I mean, the internet and social media is still pretty new and like none of it was ever regulated and no one really knows what the hell to make of all of it. I guess kind of wrapping up in part regarding like how you kind of go about the money process and kind of getting these kids the best possible, you know, deal or opportunity. How proactive are you having to be? Because this is an ever evolving process because this only started again. I keep having to remind myself like four or five months ago. And you're starting to see some of it take shape a little bit, right? You had the Texas thing the other night where it was a group of, I don't want to use the term boosters because I don't remember exactly who it was, but basically someone around Texas established something as a charity nonprofit or whatever, and they can kind of get deals for kids and give them, I think it was the Texas offensive lineman making like 50K if they come to Texas a year through the NIL deals that this group will get them. How proactive are you having to be in kind of keeping an eye and ear out for what's coming next and what seems to be a ridiculously and rapidly evolving kind of marketplace? So I don't know what the deal is in Texas. I actually haven't heard that story, but I know there's a clause in the Mississippi bill that says you can't have any sort of NIL deal that is contingent upon attending a school. So like there is against the law, at least in Mississippi, to be like, okay, hey, we'll pay you $50,000 if you go to Ole Miss, if you go to Mississippi State. That's straight up in the bill that there's no – you can't have an NIL deal that's contingent upon coming to, to a university. So I'm sure there's better legal brains and more uh, well-seasoned attorneys who navigated that better. But I'm just – when it comes to being proactive with that kind of stuff, that's, that's out of my realm of uh, if it doesn't fit in this framework that I know – then uh, we're not going to touch it. If that's well, you actually to answer just, your question. That you actually just hit on the crux of the problem because the article I read on it, and again, this came out last night, was a bunch of people were like, "Hey, like you can't do that because exactly what you just said." And it probably actually, this is kind of how this shit happens, right? Everything happens based off legal precedent. So I imagine something will happen of this because I imagine their side of it is like, you know, 
well, this is not contingent upon you coming here. It's just, Hey, if you happen to end up here, then it'll be so like, right. that's kind of the gray area that's going to become non gray area. It'll be fascinating to watch. And so I was just curious at like how you're able to like view that, because I think some version, I'm actually fairly confident some version of that is going to come to Mississippi and we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. But so you mentioned at the end of the day, you just want to enjoy this process it's something you started from scratch. And I think there's a motivation aspect that comes with something starting your own, as opposed to, you know, just getting a job at an agency or whatever. How do you view success um, in terms of where Delta sports group is going to go? Was it, I mean, do you view it in like years terms, clients terms, how do you kind of view whether this thing is successful or not? And how do you gauge that? Yeah. So again, back to just those, those basic principles of what we believe in, what we're trying to do is, uh, if I can create positive change in the local communities and help build these kids a foundation for life after sports, even if this is me doing it for three to five years and realizing I'm, you know, it's not going to be successful. And if I was able to do that with this business, then it's a success. So that's uh, whether it comes through, through sort of community fundraiser events that I plan to host, um, in the future with, you know, my Delta sports group brand on it, whether it is NIL education and making sure deals like you mentioned with the Texas thing are not, are not in place. Um, and if we're able to do any sort of, again, I know it's uh, kind of a fleeting thing to try to catch what positive change in a local community is, but there can be some sort of fundraising dollar. There can be some sort of hey, this is the amount of enjoyment I got from these kids for this. And I was able to make a positive change in their life. And I was able to make a positive change in the local communities where I'm established. Then again, even if I have to shut this thing down in five years to move on with life, Delta Sports Group's a success. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's interesting. And like, I don't want to call what you're doing a side hustle because it's 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 a hell of a lot more than that but i mean at the end of the day what we're the podcast we're talking on right now is technically a side hustle but isn't that kind of what this nil has enabled is you know back in the day when you're getting into the sports agency aspect of it it's like you either get lucky as hell or you don't to where for you i imagine someone that wanted to get into this industry in some ways it's kind of a blessing to where you can kind of bide your time a little bit. Yep. And there's not the urgency of getting that one lucky break. And you can actually one do the, you know, genuine and noble work of helping kids and helping college kids put a little extra money in their pocket and just have the time to see where it goes. If that makes sense, it, it mm-hmm. seems like more of a positive than a negative. Yeah, definitely. And it's uh, man, when I did that shoot with the, with the planners, like, that was so much fun. I enjoyed it so much. The process of doing the contracts of reaching out to the kids to actually being on site with a film crew there and seeing the full version of how an actual shoot looks. I, I enjoyed it so much um, that if I can do this for work and if that's my, my daily job, then my life is in a good spot. If I can wake up and not dread clocking into work um, because I have this other side hustle going on, until it either does turn into a full-time gig or it doesn't work, then yeah, dude, I've enjoyed the process. I think it's been a really, it's already been a fun chapter of my life to this point and we're just starting. Absolutely. And like the, the other side of that too, is like, what you know, once it does work out and like, you kind of get some, some, 
I guess if, if it, you know, your wildest dreams come true and you're able to get, you know, multiple actual professional clients, you have the expertise and kind of the experience and whether it's the internship or just going through everything else of able to handle it when it gets to that point, instead of where it feels like you're in new waters right now, because everything's new with an IL. Well, if it actually turns into what you want it to turn into, like you actually are well prepared and well equipped to like handle that instead of just being a fish out of water when it gets to that level. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm an early mover into a, a market that's unknown right now, so that has its advantages and disadvantages, of course. But if we if we get it figured out and I have a blueprint of success with the NIL landscape in a year or two, then, I mean, I'm a year or two ahead of everybody else that tries to start it as well. Does it? So does it count? So if you say you sign a football player now, he go, he's in college, he has two years left, you get him a couple of NIL deals, he goes to the NFL – he retains you as his guy. Does that count as the NFL contract that would make you not have to retest? Yeah. But so the thing is, is there's a very distinct line. You have to be their marketing agent. And then I would have to have a full another pitch of having his NFL agency, like NFL contract. So that's, it would be a whole different process. So there's a NFL PA certified contract that you have to sign called the SRA, the standard representation agreement that I would have to convince the kid after two years of being his marketing agent that I'm the guy to do his NFL contractual negotiations. And once that signature happens and I'm on the SRA, then my clock is reset for three years. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the thing is I have a clock until my name is on an SRA that gets sent to an NFL front office. Okay. That makes sense. So if I sign a kid as a, even if he's the D1 best athlete in the country, I do not have anything to do with NFL stuff until that SRA is signed. They don't care about me being their marketing agent in college, but the kid and the relationship you build with them surely helps that cause. Sure. And like, this has created opportunity to get in even earlier than anyone could have imagined. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I hope everyone got a better idea of kind of what goes into this process and something that's really new and kind of the, uh, the glamorous and the non-glamorous aspects of being a sports agent. Well, uh, you don't need me to tell you this, but I'm very proud of you. This has been awesome. Check them out, Delta Sports Group. It's dsgathletes.com, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let them know where to hit you up on social media and all that. And I really enjoyed it, Rippy. This has uh, been a great opportunity. And, again, thanks to everybody for their love and support through all of this because it doesn't happen without uh, the love and support of my friends and family. So thanks for this opportunity. I know I've said it multiple times. I'm enjoying it, and I really have enjoyed this session. So, again, just thank you. Absolutely. Check them out, dsgathletes.com. All right, that was Michael Portner. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. (laughs) It was a little weird for me. I never thought I'd be uh, talking to uh, one of my best friends in the world uh, about about uh, something we're both, you know, both chopping up on a podcast about like professional stuff. I don't think if you'd have told me at 19 years old when we were sitting in the uh, yellow house on Pierce Extended, probably most definitely up to no good that we would be uh, hashing it out about uh, both kind of what we're doing with our careers and lives with a microphone in front of us. But uh, nevertheless, here we are. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I learned a lot from it. I mean, the NIL thing is kind of a shit show in terms of you know, how it's regulated the different laws and stuff and it's in, in different ways to go about what's legal and what's not. It's interesting to hear someone who's, you know, tasked with not only doing that, but finding the best possible, um, you know, outlet and deal for the people he represents kind of, 
listen to how he navigates it. So I hope you learned a lot. I really enjoyed that conversation. We're going to get to Matt Wilson of our daily bears to give you a little teaser of the old miss Baylor matchup, as I mentioned at the top of the show. But before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by manscaped. That's right. Manscaped. They're the industry leader in men's grooming. They offer precision tools for your jewels. I heard the seventies were a wild time. Manscaped is here to make sure that is a thing of the past. You need to be nice and kempt down there. No one wants to get out of control, and you can do that by joining the two mil- over 2 million men that trust Manscaped. The Lawnmower 4.0 model, uh, I got one of these in the mail the other week. Nice LED light on it, portable charger, different, uh, different uh, rail guards or whatever you call it when you go into the barber shop and they say, what number do you want? You say a number between one for through four can't really think of the name of that right now but think of that for downstairs manscaped has it all kinds of different gadgets and tools need to check them out manscaped.com and make sure everything is nice and kempt and cleaned up down there they are here to make me time in the bathroom your favorite time in the bathroom check them out manscaped.com use the promo code mpw and get 20 percent off any purchase i think i made it a solid month uh, as Johnny one take on the Manscaped ads without laughing. So credit to me for being a mature adult, not to brag, just a statement of fact. Here is Matt Wilson of our daily bears to preview some big picture stuff on Baylor. All right. We now welcome on Matt Wilson, managing editor of our daily bears um, between two bears podcast. We have a sugar bowl matchup that's still quite a ways away, but just wanted to get some kind of uh flyover thoughts about, uh, you know, the other side, Baylor, the season that was. I appreciate you joining us, man. Absolutely. Why not talk about it now, right? Like, there's not much else going on right at this minute. Ba- basketball is kind of in a uh, in a, a lull for finals. So, absolutely. It's going to be a fantastic game in a fantastic location. Why not get excited about it now? Yeah, exactly. I, honestly, I was looking up this weekend, and you know, you're so used to the routine of like football, and even last weekend with there being fewer games. Obviously, Baylor played last week and Ole Miss did not, but you got a slate of seven, eight games out the course of the day. And I kind of got, you know, to thinking today, I was like, oh, well, we'll see what's on this Saturday. I was like, oh, it's nothing. It's Army Navy, and that's about it. Which I like that game for what it is, but like, sure, like this has finally come to a uh, come to a brief hiatus before we get to the end here. Baylor was very busy last weekend. Uh, right here in my backyard, Cowboy Stadium in Arlington, they beat Oklahoma State to win the Pac-12. Or excuse me, good Lord. Big, uh, no, that's fine. Hey, look, in a way, we kind of won the Pac-12 too by beating BYU, who in turn beat just about every Pac-12 team. That's fine. Call us Pac-12 champions too. I'll take it. That's true. I'm, I'm over here giving out trophies for folks. I'll Baylor. take it. The Pac-12 doesn't want Utah to win. The, the Baylor's fine. It's fine. That's true. They'd probably rather have Baylor than Utah. So that they win the Big 12 in a fashion that I think of my Sunday co-host and I joked, like, it's like the ending of, like, a shitty sports movie. Like, you know what I mean? That was, like, the most, like, dramatic ending you could possibly have. The guy going for the pylon at the one, he's turned away on a hell of an effort there from a former walk-on, if I'm not mistaken. So just one hell of a story. Let's uh let's start there. So Baylor comes into that game last weekend with two losses. You know, they're out of it in terms of the college football playoff, but it's still obviously, you know, one hell of a moment for a program that's been through a lot over the last decade or even the last half decade. And then, you know, to add another dosage of adversity to it, you lose Bohannon for this game. What is the temperature mindset of whether it's the team or the fan base heading into that matchup? Because you could argue Oklahoma State had a hell of a lot more to play for. 
So I, <laughs> I'm going to try to speak for the average Baylor fan here. Sure. Okay. And then, and then I'll give you my overly optimistic view because that tends to be the kind of person I am. I, I, I feel like I've had a really good, um, I feel like I've been tuned into the vibe of this team pretty good, right? I uh, I knew that the Texas Tech game would be kind of sloppy just because you have a redshirt freshman playing quarterback, and that never goes super smoothly, right? But the very first pass attempt of the game was a 65-yard, oh, just bomb, perfectly placed to R.G. Sneed, and it was a fantastic touchdown. And the thing that I realized from that first play in that Texas Tech game, the game right before the conference championship was, oh, this kid is relaxed. And you, you go and you learn a little bit more about him. Short you used to play baseball shortstop. And if you know anything about shortstops in baseball, they they know they, they know what they can do and they're confident about it. Shortstop just did to have that mentality, confident, short memory. And that's exactly how Shapin played in the first half. He came out, threw the ball all over the field, distributed it to everybody. 17 for 17 in his in the first half. Um, looked fantastic. Couple wide open touchdown passes, but then he put one right on the money to Tyquan Thornton. And we're like, oh my God, like this is going great. Now leading up to the game, we didn't know that was coming, right? We had had a tilt with Oklahoma State in October where the offense just looked anemic. And uh, we had a couple get right games after that uh, and and the team came out and said hey you know we weren't focused enough for Oklahoma State and I thought that was telling I stored that in the back of my mind and then of course there's the disappointing loss to TCU so Baylor fans knew that this team had the ability to kind of drop the ball in away games and so there was always this concern like well is the offense going to just fall off a cliff it didn't in the first half but it did in the second um there is a quiet confidence, I think, among the fan base that, yes, this is going to be a close game. It's going to be a stressful game, but there is a chance to win. So I don't think hope was ever lost. And that hope only increased over that first half. What, so you mentioned the, the, the first game being a struggle. I actually, for whatever reason, I don't remember why or what I was doing, but I caught a decent amount of that first game. I think it was 24-14. It seemed like Baylor really struggled to move the football against Oklahoma State and really sort of looked one-dimensional just from an offensive, what it looked like on Saturday versus, you know, the first matchup. You could argue it didn't even look a ton different. Baylor just played a lot better defensively and, of course, had more success. It seemed like running the ball. In your mind, what was different offensively for Baylor between the first and the second matchup? Well, I think there was just a little bit more flexibility. Jeff Grimes has installed this wide zone running scheme that is I think at one point was more efficient than 50 teams were passing the ball, which is insane. (laughs) Right. Um, But it just was not working against that Oklahoma state defense in October. They're too fast. They're too smart. They're too cohesive. It, and and it seemed like Baylor was just going back to the well that was already dry. You, You come out in the conference championship and you just throw the ball way more than you normally do in the first half uh, of other games. And it just seemed to catch them, them being uh, Oklahoma State, just seemed to catch Oklahoma State off guard. Uh, so in the first half, it did look drastically different. Uh, in the second half, it looked more like that October game. You just held on. Exactly. It, by the skin of our teeth and the fingernails of our fingernails, I think, as Dan Rubenstein from the Solid Verbal said. Uh, that's exactly what happened. 
So you, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I imagine, you know, for the casual like SEC fan, you probably don't think of the Big 12 and think of stout defenses, particularly stout front seven, but that could not be further from the case with Texas, uh, excuse me, with Oklahoma State. That front seven in particular, they have some dudes up there, and it almost doesn't look like a traditional Big 12 defense without physical they play. And it's interesting with Baylor, it had all that success, as you mentioned, running the football, particularly as there's, you know, that wide zone running scheme. And, you know, it works against, what, pretty much 10, 11 opponents. You have, you know, very little success with it the first time around. Having the pretty much, I mean, the lack of a better phrase, the stones to throw it that many times early in a game with a backup quarterback. Puts, a redshirt freshman. Yeah, puts a lot of trust in the kid. But that you got to also give credit to Grimes there for just being like, look, you know, if this is our only shot to have any success, like it goes back to the definition of insanity, right? Are we going to try to do the same thing again and just see if we can do it better? Or are we just going to go down with the ship? And obviously it paid off, but you got to give credit there because that's a, uh, you know, for a second year offensive coordinator at a power five school, that's uh that takes some stones. That there's, there's a macro lesson to be learned here as well, right? If you zoom out and you look at the decisions that Dave Aranda made in the off season, right? You look at what's obviously not working and you make a change. Right. He he lets Larry Fedora go. He brings in Jeff Grimes and Eric Mateos, the offensive line coach. And you see the difference. Right. Same thing with Grimes. I think he's <laughs> I, I don't know how you could see otherwise that the offense wasn't working in that first Oklahoma State matchup. And and to a degree, you know, some of the other games. And, and so he he changed things up and it worked. It worked. Now, Blake Shapin got uh, shaken up um, uh, on a long run, I think, in the second quarter that right shoulder was not right. He was, he was injured, really could not throw the ball accurately. And so, yes, that second half did end up being more of a, Hey, let's just grind this out to the best of our ability and, and see what happens. Uh, but you're exactly right. Yeah. The ability to be flexible and have a counter punch uh, proved valuable. How did all of this actually we'll go with Chapin first. What, so he he played the last three games because Bohannon had had a hamstring issue. So Bohannon actually had not played since the Oklahoma win. What is the dynamic between those two like? Because it was a very and you often get these in these moments. It was a very endearing post game interview with him with whoever was doing the sideline reporting for ESPN for that game about those two's relationship. How much did you anyone else kind of Baylor fans in general know about Shapin? you know, before he got thrust into the spotlight, because like the backup quarterback, I mean, Ole Miss has had this happen quite a few times over the last half decade. You know who he is, you know, he's there, but you have no idea what kind of player he is until he's all of a sudden, you know, you're counting on him to go win a football game. What was known about him going into the game? Honestly, not a ton. I mean, we had seen him throw a couple passes versus West Virginia uh, back in October uh, and then he he played a, a good portion of the Kansas State. I, I think he played the entire Kansas State game, yeah, uh, where he was uh, efficient but didn't throw for any touchdowns and only, I think, 137-odd yards. So from a personality standpoint, we really didn't know. We just knew the kid was confident and we came out. I, I think what this speaks to more is what a leader that Gary Bohannon is. There's been talks of how he has been leading this locker room uh, the entire season, there's a, a really fun interview with Aranda, how he um, or with Bohannon, how he would meet Aranda at the coffee machine before 6 a.m. some mornings and, you know, either those made for radio interviews. Um, so I, I still don't know that we know a ton about the personality of Blake Shapin, but 
I, I think that we have seen him improve game after game after game. And there's something to that, right? He's, he's confident, he's efficient. And I, I think it shows that the work ethic is there. So past that, I don't want to speculate anymore, but like, it seems to be a kid that's willing to, willing to work hard and, and learn. Will Bohannon, in your opinion, be healthy for the bowl? No idea. I mean, a hamstring injury is so tough to, to rehab, right? It's, it's mostly rest. Right. Um, Which you do get the luxury of, right? It's not like correct. a bye week where it's like, oh yeah, you actually only have in reality, like three days of rest. And then you got to go back out and hopefully try to practice a little bit. This is actually a little bit more rest. He's a tough dude. He's a tough dude with, with a month and change of rest. I would imagine that he goes, uh, especially if Shapin is not hundred percent with the shoulder thing. Bohannon is a warrior, man. I, I, he's a big kid too. I, I think that he would be able to stand up and, and at least do what he can. So my expectation is yes, he goes, but I truthfully don't know. Take me through that transition from Charlie Brewer to Bohannon. Oh because- no. Oh no. Do we have to? <laughs> so like, what is, what it, so it's fascinating because it's someone who follows it a little bit from afar. I mean, Charlie Brewer seemed like he'd been at the quarterback uh, of Baylor for forever. I mean, what he played and started, or I guess he played in like six or seven games as far back as 2017. And then he, you know, go, I mean, gets processed out of the program, goes to Utah and then his career, I think he actually walked away from football, if I'm not mistaken from uh, Utah this year. What what was the Charlie Brewer experience like? Take me to that start to finish, then into Bohannon, because it was a, quite a significant changing of the guard. <sighs> um, when look, when <laughs> when the first thing somebody says about your quarterback is a hey, tough kid. Hey, that's a tough kid right there. I don't know if that's the best the best thing to say, right? But. He was an extremely tough kid, absolute gamer. You can never say he he never played his hardest, right? But when a defense would face a Charlie Brewer offense, they could ignore the far side of the field, the wide side of the field. They really could. There was just, by the last season and a half, there was just no zip on the ball. There was no accuracy deep. There was no zip on the on the short throws. So the offense was so limited in what they could do successfully that it the fedora system even if it was good which i don't think it was never stood a chance uh, he would hold on to the ball for too long wasn't really decisive uh, but thanks to some late game heroics and a couple close games there was a large portion of the fan base that really really enjoyed the way he played and i get it i get it but if you're a quarterback at the d1 level in a power five conference you need to be able to throw the ball uh around the field <laughs> not just a one half Right, because that 2019 year, what they won a road game at TCU, they in overtime, they beat Texas Tech in overtime and won a couple of close ball games. And that's obviously kind of the uh the whole peak. And then they didn't they lose in overtime that year in the Big 12 championship game. Uh in the Big 12 championship game, I've tried to block that out. Um, and sorry if we want to cut this out because my dryer is going <laughs> off. My apologies there. No worries. Hold on. Give me a second. Let me pull up this schedule here. Um was that overtime? No, that was that was not. Uh, yeah, it was overtime. You're exactly right. Yes. But was so, he like dinged up or something in that game? He was dinged. He's been dinged up his entire career. So I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know that Charlie Brewer was ever fully healthy after his sophomore year. I, I truly believe that. I, I I'm not going to you know speculate on like concussion symptoms or something. He took a ton of hits. I don't think his shoulder was healthy. 
the thing is that Matt Rule kept a lot of that under wraps. He was never really forthcoming with injury status for any player, especially Charlie. So, so you, you go through all that. And so then Bohannon is clearly the start. I mean, it seemed very obvious at the end of the last year, it was kind of moving on from Charlie Brewer, despite him having another year of eligibility. What was known, kind of the same question as I asked about shaping, what was known about Bohannon going into this season? Seems like it's a team that runs the football a lot, which we covered, but he's more than capable enough in the passing game. And he seems to be, particularly in the red zone, a pretty viable running threat and adds another dimension to it, which is sort of what Ole Miss has in Corral when he's healthy. You didn't see that in the second part of the year, but like there's some similarities to me in how they're used in the running game. He's like I said, he's a big kid, right? And he's pretty nimble. Uh, He's not afraid to lower his shoulder for better or for worse. So absolutely in the red zone, absolutely a running threat. Uh, His, his legs probably won the Oklahoma game this year. Um, It's a situation where in the passing game, he is a big armed kid. He can, he can make all the throws and he's been mostly efficient. He, the turnover bug bit him a couple times down the stretch in, in some important games but it never really um, caused a loss with the exception of the Texas uh, with the, the TCU game. Uh, the last pass of the game there was an interception by Bohannon. So you have to be confident with him under center. It, it's just a situation of when does Grimes unleash that, right? When does Grimes choose to unleash uh, the running game with Bohannon? And uh, we haven't seen it probably as much as fans want to, but it's there. It's always there as an option. Biggest strength and biggest weakness as a quarterback? For Bohannon? Yes. Um, I, 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 the deep ball has been there more often than it's been hit. So I'd like to see a little bit more accuracy on, uh, on nine routes, but it's there, right? He's, he's capable of hitting them. Uh, so that would be the biggest weakness. The, the big strength probably is the running game. He, he, he is a viable running back. So, that probably is the biggest strength, but also he's tremendously accurate in, in mid routes, um, uh, middle of the field. The, the whole field's open for a band. The, the arm strength is there. So it's between the arm strength and the running game. What was the approval rating on? I was, I was about to say Art Bryles because I'm uh, very low. Yeah, I'd say pretty low. I don't think- personally for me, extremely low. Zero percent. <laughs> I don't think I'm all over the place today. It's late ish at night. I'm uh, becoming an old man. Uh, what was the <laughs> approval rating on Dave Aranda when this hire was made? Because in this modern age of college football, it's interesting. Like, maybe it's just me, but it seems like when a defensive guy is hired, unless he brings, a, you know, a high powered offensive coordinator or someone that people know is very popular with them, it doesn't get the same buzz as offensive-minded guys get when they're hired. And LSU comes fresh off a national championship. He comes over to Baylor just pre-2020 season. What was the approval rating, you think, of the hire itself? I think there's a ton of trust in the fan base or from the fan base in Mac Rhodes, the AD. You look at the Matt Rule hire, and I was stunned that we were able to pull Matt Rule away from Temple. I did not know that that was – I didn't even know he was available, Right. And so that was a massive paradigm shift for the fan base going from an extremely high powered offensive uh, theme for the team to a defensive oriented team. Right. But you saw it bring results. And so I think the fan base was a lot more open to having a relatively unknown personality in Dave Randa, but uh, a personality with results. And then after the first couple pressers, after having what amounts to a Baptist preacher and Matt Rule, you know, now going to 
Uh, I think some people have called Dave Aranda a samurai at times, a, uh, a football robot. So a little bit more <laughs> understated, a little bit more cerebral, uh, but it's been, it's been really high so far. Uh, after last season, we needed to see some changes. The fan base was frustrated with the fourth down decision-making, was frustrated with the offensive system, but he has won back every single person with the hires and changes that he's made to his use of analytics and aggression on fourth down as well as bringing in Grimes and Mateos. Yeah, it, it, it's it's almost jarring how calm he is. I like the samurai. I don't know if there's any sort of nickname or shirt you guys could print, but that 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 has some legs to it. Because, like, even after that moment, there's not a way a football game that it could have ended. Like you couldn't draw up a more dramatic ending aside from someone like, <laughs> I don't know, like having a stroke or, like, dying on the field as he make a tackle or something. I mean, and then he's just like, – he had kind of a uh, – a, a stoic reaction when the play happened, which is Stop. not that uncommon no, for coaches it was, in general. It was serial killer shit. If we're yes, being completely really honest, was. he <laughs> was expressionless. He was, I tweeted it out. I was like, man, that is wild. I love it, but he is, he is a maniac in the most calm way. He, he was looking like Dexter out there uh, as the play was happening. Uh, Baylor still had to knee the ball. So the game wasn't over. So we're not going to celebrate. And then, like, even afterward, like, even in the post-game TV interview, you know, some guys get, like, emotional, start talking about how much they love the seniors and all that shit or whatever. But, like, he's, like, just breaking it down like he made some pretty shrewd stock plays and earned, like, 10 minutes on Fox Business about, like, how he went about it over the last year. It was really, like – I mean, it, there's there's an element of, like, admiration to it either. But, like, as you mentioned, like, serial killer shit, it's almost, like, kind of frightening. It's like, does this guy have a pulse? Like, how many people is he buried? How, how like – how has that played with the team? Because I read a note in a Ross Dellinger story, uh, National Guy for Sports Illustrated, about I think kind of things that hit the fan at one point last year. You know, it wasn't going well. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of the guys asked him, like, we need you to chew us out a time or two. I don't know if that actually ended up happening. But, like, how has this calmness uh, played within the locker room and really just the program as a whole? Uh, I think – it was summed up best, and I, I, I'm summarizing here, but uh, Terrell Bernard tweeted out that, you know, essentially coach did this, right? Coach, coach created this, and and they were playing for him. And it, it sure seems like this locker room rallies behind him. Now, last year, yeah, there was some turmoil in the locker room. I think there were some coaching situations, butting heads, I think. Uh, there's, this is all rumor, but that's what we do on message boards. Right. Um, Fedora, I think was more of a stronger personality than desired. I think there was some clashing there. So, and when you're a retread at that point, strong personality doesn't play unless you're winning. Not great. Yeah. Your offense really has to be clicking to be a successful, strong personality, I would expect. Uh, but now that I think there's a fantastic relationship between Grimes and Aranda. I think they approach the game the same way mentally, just with maybe a different personality. Um, so it's been fantastic uh, to, to go back to Dave Aranda's, you know, outward personality, right? After the game, if you, if you pour over the footage after the game with the, with the team celebrating, the times where Aranda looked happiest was when he was talking with his players, right? He wasn't, he wasn't thinking about football. He was thinking about his players. And I think there is a real connection there between that senior class, that locker room and him. How did this 
turnaround happened. You mentioned two and seven last year. When whether it good or bad, whenever like I look at results from a first year head coach during COVID, because Ole Miss has one of those too, right? And mm-hmm. I guess it's a little different because you know I was watching every game, but like I just never know what to make of it because everything. I mean, my God, we could spend an hour on just everything everyone had to go through last year. But you mentioned the offensive struggles. What they only scored thirty points twice. Like you had a two OT game where you only got to twenty one. You mentioned you know making the staff change after a year, kind of getting rid of Fedora, going with Grimes, a guy that he had LSU connections with that had only been an offensive coordinator period was he at BYU for two years or one. I can't remember, but it doesn't matter. Like that pretty, pretty raw in that sense. How, how has this happened? Because actually I'll just let you answer that first. Cause I have a recruiting follow-up to that as well. But like in your mind, what's the biggest thing that's kind of led to this turnaround? Because this is, this is, I think more shocking than people want to let on because I think when people follow this from afar, you're thinking, Oh yeah, Baylor, they've been a good program ever since Matt rule turned it around. It's like, well, yes, they have been, but they went two and seven last year. And I read a story earlier today in prepping for this interview. Baylor hadn't beaten a ranked opponent and since 2015 until Saturday. Is that accurate? Uh, I mean, they won a couple games against ranked teams this season. Uh, you know, so you're I talking, think- that's some numbers manipulation into the season rankings. I'm guessing. Uh, no, I think uh, I think BYU was ranked at the time. I could be wrong about that, but okay. But now, I mean. Last last season, um, yeah, there weren't any ranked wins. This season, if you if you look back now, the uh, BYU uh, at at the at now I believe is ranked. Oklahoma certainly was ranked, uh, and then Oklahoma State. So, so that may have been a product of me reading it wrong. But so going into the twenty twenty one season, they hadn't beaten a ranked opponent even through all the rules success in five years. That that's that's jarring to me. Not, not if you're a Baylor fan, because that offense was a mess. It really was. So if you're looking at the core reason for the jump in offensive production between last season and this season, which really is the reason for success, right? That defense was solid last year, kept Baylor in games, just couldn't score enough points. It really is offensive line cohesion and coaching. Mateos and Grimes coached that BYU offensive line up to a like extremely high degree they made zach wilson look fantastic they made that byu running game look fantastic and it translated this was a baylor offensive line that really struggled last year this is a baylor offensive line that has struggled for the last three or four years it has been a common thread between all of the struggles that baylor has had even in successful seasons so you look at it and again like i said this wide zone the, the wide zone offense, extremely efficient. And you can't do that without a smart, cohesive unit in the trenches. And it's, it's, it's interesting because you talk about the offense being a mess. I imagine there's some old Miss people listening to it too. And being like, I wish, you know, I wish we could win the sec West with a mess of an offense. Like yeah, almost had one of the better ones in college football. I still haven't ever sniffed Atlanta. But like, you know, you have the turnaround. They're much better offensively this year. You know, that's two big 12 championship games in the last four years as you as Oklahoma and Texas depart for the SEC in a weird way. This was a strong year for kind of what the future of the Pac-12 could be. Right. I mean, there's a future Pac-12 member in the playoff. BYU had a pretty good run of it. And then you have two, you know, ongoing members. I'm sure there's a better word that I can't think of that were in the title game this year. 
Didn't Oklahoma win this sucker like six or seven straight years in a row? This was the first non-Oklahoma champion in some time. Something like that, yeah. I mean, if, if, if someone is looking around and looking at it from a Big 12 standpoint, like how do fans, whatever, view the future of the Big 12 and does this year, the way it played out, change that? It's bright. I think everybody, I think everybody had a really good time. Everybody who's a fan of the schools that are not Oklahoma and Texas are really enjoying the fact that neither of them made the conference championship game. Uh, it is exciting to you look at the schools coming in. There's a there's a playoff team. Uh, there's a school that represents an entire religion. There is the school that is the largest school by attendance in the nation. And then there's a school that's in a city that's bigger than like 37 states or something in terms of population. So th these aren't small schools. These aren't unsuccessful schools. Houston had a fantastic year. UCF will always have the recruiting base to be successful. Cincinnati has a fantastic program and infrastructure there right now. And BYU is just a, a you know, perennial relevant team, right? So do you lose out on some of the name recognition with Oklahoma and Texas? Sure. But is name recognition for Texas great right now? Is name recognition for Oklahoma great right now? Losing Lincoln Riley and changing the complete, you know, profile of what that program is going to be revolving around with Venables. So it's different, but I think there's a lot of excitement because there's a lot of fun teams. There's a lot of good coaches and there's a lot of good players uh, being recruited from Texas and around the South. Yeah. And, and even at the end of the day, if you really want to crunch the numbers and get deeper into it, you don't really fall in the primate rankings either. You lose pole assassins monkey, but you gain a school that's campus is nestled right adjacent to where Harambe passed away. So like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so like you're still even on that regard too. So, I mean, I, I'd call that a win of a trade. <laughs> Brian, that's an angle I had not considered. I have, I, the only thing I can think about for the last month or so has been uh, Texas special team coach, girlfriend, monkey bite kid, Halloween party, question mark. The that only reason I was able to pull that out of the, uh, the depths of despair, I lived in Cincinnati for a summer. I did it like a major league baseball internship. And like the fourth or fifth day I was there, my girlfriend was visiting. We wanted to go to the zoo. And I like finally put it together. When we got to the gates of the zoo, I was like, Oh, this is where they shot that gorilla. Like we gotta go, we gotta go see this. So I can't not think of Cincinnati, that campus and the zoo being right next door. So uh, you're in good hands there, Matt Wilson. I appreciate the time, man. I, uh, I I think it'll be a fun, fantastic matchup. We still got some time before. If I can return the favor, let me know. But I uh, I really appreciate the time. This is great stuff. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me on. It's it's just I think everybody's just gonna have fun. Like I said, fantastic location, two really fun teams. And uh, it's just going to be good football, I think. Absolutely. It's impossible not to have fun in New Orleans. And if you uh, make it down there, holler at me. Absolutely. Thanks to Matt Wilson for his time. That's going to do it today for our show. Appreciate you guys' patience. Sorry about the, uh, the uh, off-scheduled podcast. I know people like to be in a routine. Expect that there Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But we're doing what we can here. And I wanted to make sure we had a complete Thursday show for you guys. So appreciate you guys listening if you made it to the end. Really enjoyed seeing this podcast grow. We've got a lot of awesome stuff on the horizon as we uh, as we finish out this year, 2021, which has been an interesting year for for me in the best way possible. Uh, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I've, we got a lot of great stuff heading into uh, New Year. Uh, couldn't be more excited and more motivated about our partnership with uh, 
Rubble Grove, all the uh, wonderful things that's done for both the newsletter and the podcast. It's not lost on me the opportunity that that's brought me, and I am uh, really fired up to do some different things as we uh, kind of wade out of football season and into the new year. So uh, thank you guys for following along. As always, really enjoyed interacting with folks. Um, I will be at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. Uh, that's just a random thought I threw out there. So uh, looking forward to uh, seeing and interacting with a lot more of you guys uh, down there. Uh, can't have a bad time in New Orleans on New Year's. Y'all be safe. Have a great uh, Thursday or maybe Friday when you're listening. How? I don't know. We'll have another podcast by then. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you on Friday.